chapter number 7. 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. When you find it, let's go ahead and stand together uh, in honor of the reading of God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. I'm going to pick up in verse 1 and read down several verses. And uh, as you turn there, most of our folks are very connected uh, within our church uh, messaging and news gets out fairly quick. Uh, But I'm sure most of you know by now, Brother Ron Ballard went home to be with the Lord uh, late last night. Got a text message uh, from uh, Miss Shelley. Spoke with her this morning. You pray for them. Obviously, this was something that was expected, but it's always difficult when, uh, when the time does come, so you pray for them. Had the opportunity on many, many occasions to talk with Brother Ron about where he was going, and he knew where he was going. Excited about that. Uh, reunited with his, his beloved wife, who less than a year ago went home to be with the Lord. So you pray for them, and um, pray for the family throughout the, um, the next few days. Second Corinthians chapter 7, let's look down to verse 1 this morning. The Bible says, having therefore these promises, Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Receive us, we have wronged no man, we have corrupted no man, we have defrauded no man. I speak not this who condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and to live and live with you. Now watch verse 4. Great is my boldness of speech toward you, great is my glorying of you, I am filled with comfort, I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Now that kind of seems like uh, a little bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? That exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Hold that thought, we'll come back to it in the message. Verse 5, for when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforted those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. We'll stop there and pray. Father, I thank you today, Lord, for your goodness, the great singing, the great spirit. Lord, I'm thankful for the privilege to come to church. And Lord, how I look forward to hearing from you today through your spirit. I pray that you bless your word as it goes out. Father, I pray there be no hindrance for us to receive the message you have for us. There's not a soul here today and even those watching online today that, Lord, you didn't know would be in the hearing of the message. And I pray, Father, we would allow your word to accomplish what you have sent it to do in all of our lives. Help none of us, Lord, be so prideful today to think that there's not something in your word for us today. And I pray that, Lord, we'd receive it and respond to it during the invitation. If there's one lost here today, help them make it so clear and so known in their heart today, Father, of their need for the Savior. Lord, they'd not spend eternity in a devil's hell, but be saved today, have a home waiting for them in heaven, as Brother Ron Ballard, Lord, was able to enter into last night. And thank you for the hope of heaven. Bless the family as they grieve today, and bless our, our time together, for it's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday, had an opportunity to go with uh, many of our young people. I know we had some scheduling conflicts. Others couldn't go, but had a good time with those who were able to go to an uh, air show down in uh, in Louisiana, down in Hammond, Louisiana. And uh, boy, had a good time yesterday. And some of them are looking at me right now, wondering if I'm going to tell all about the trip. No, I'm going to go ahead and let you know. No, I'm not going to tell everything that happened on the trip. Let me say we got closer together yesterday. Some of us and the young people, particularly in my van, uh, we got very close yesterday. And uh, we took a little time yesterday afternoon on the way home. We even pulled over on the side of the road and picked flowers for a little while. Uh, somebody asked me in the other van, why are you pulled over? I said, we're making core memories right now, leave us alone. 
And so we did, had a great time uh, on the way down, had a great time there, got a little sunburn. Uh, a few of them are like me, a little red today, and uh, got down there, set up our chairs and began watching the air show, and always a, an exciting time going to an air show, if you've ever been to one. Uh, planes flying everywhere and all of these things, aerobatics. We got to see a, pl- uh, a motorcycle jump over a plane in midair, it was an amazing thing to see, and got to see the Golden Knight parachute team from the United States Army come in, and a jet truck, we got to see that. And got to see a P-51, the workhorse uh, of World War II, fly right next to an A-10 Warthog. It's an amazing heritage flight. Got to see that yesterday. But probably what tickled me the most was the reactions of the young people who were sitting behind me. Uh, Yes, they were our kids uh, sitting behind me, and uh, they had uh, wing walkers. They had this man and this lady walking on the wings of the planes while they were flying around. And uh, when that lady landed and came around shaking hands, I wanted to shake her hand, and I did shake her hand. I mean, that's quite the lady. As a matter of fact, the the pilot of the A-10 Warthog that was flying through there was a lady, And uh, I told our guys, I said, if she comes around here, you say yes, ma'am, especially to someone flying that much firepower up there in the air. Uh, But as we sat there watching these planes do all of these stunts up in the air, there were several times the planes would go way, way up, 10, 12,000 feet, and then spiral toward the ground. And then right at the last minute, as those planes were coming close to the ground, they would pull up and fly off to safety. Uh, There's a couple of times the aerobatic groups that were doing multiple maneuvers with multiple planes out there, they would begin flying toward each other and at the last minute pull up where they were not hit and no one was was injured in that. And while they were doing that, uh, I won't call Katie Grace's name, but we're, we're sitting there and Katie Grace is just squealing in my ear the entire time. I mean, watching the planes go up and almost hit the ground and the parachutist landed right in front of where we were, and what was amazing is we watched them, I mean, the precision of going hundreds of miles an hour, and as these planes were closing in on each other, just at the last moment, they would turn up and go up into a starburst in the sky, or maybe they were coming down, and they were spiraling toward the ground, and it looked like they were about to crash, and as they headed toward the ground, at the last moment, at the last possible time, they would pull up. Uh, and get out of there. We were even able to listen to the, uh, the cockpit, the, the, the microphone coming from the cockpit. Uh, they, they blasted it over the, um, uh, the intercom that was there, and we could listen to the pilots. And as the pilots were headed toward the ground, you would hear them say, pull back, pull back. They would call back on the commands. It was time to make a turn, because if they did not make those turns, uh, obviously there would be something very tragic take place. I want you to think about that this morning. Every once in a while we will hear uh, my brother, he's involved in aviation, and we're a little bit tied to that in his family, and you'll hear about one of those pilots that was doing some of those maneuvers and uh, did not make the right turn at the right time, uh, and it ended up in tragedy. We saw a jet truck yesterday with a Pratt & Whitney uh, uh, jet engine in the back of a truck. You know that guy's got to be a redneck. (laughs) I mean... I mean, how often are you sitting there in your living room thinking, I think I want to put a jet engine in the back of my pickup truck? Uh, and this guy did, and he goes over 350 miles an hour. We saw one several years ago at an air show, and uh, the guy later would go up, I believe, to Michigan at the air show there and have a miscalculation, and the truck would tumble, and he would lose his life. 
I mean, flying such close quarters and such dangerous maneuvers, if you don't make the right turn at the right time, tragedy could take place. And I want you to think about that this morning. If those men do not make the right turns at the right time, bad things are going to happen. They're going to lose their life. They could even cost the lives of spectators that are on the ground, and that would be even more tragic. It would grow exponentially in the disaster that's there. But I want you to think about that in the Christian life today because life is really no different at all. Whether you have success or failure, joy or, 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 or have misery in your life, whether you have peace in your life or whether you have anxiety in your life, can I tell you oftentimes the reason we end up with the outcomes that we end up with is because of the right or the wrong turns that we made in life or we did not make in life. Now I want you to think about it this way today. The difference in finding God's will And when things go wrong, is often making the right turn at the right point in your life. If you're saved here today, thank God for that, amen? There came a time in your life where the Holy Spirit of God drew you to Christ. And thank God if you're saved today, you made the right turn at the right place. But you understand there are people in hell this morning. Hell is not some mythical place that we have in the back of our mind, Uh, mythology. Hell is a real place. The rich man that is in hell this morning, he says, I am tormented in this flame. How did he get there? I'll tell you how he got there. He didn't make the right turn at the right time in his life. Now, Folks, thank God if you're saved today, you can't go to hell. Isn't that awesome? You cannot go to hell. The devil cannot touch our soul. I'm thankful for that today. But even though you're saved today, listen to me, it's still important that you and I learn to make the right turns at the right time in our life in order to enjoy what thus saith the Lord says we can have in our life. Think about Zacchaeus real quickly. Zacchaeus was up in a sycamore tree and Zacchaeus' life was about forever to be altered and eternally altered. Can I tell you why? Because when he was up in the sycamore tree, he made the decision to come down. There it was. There it was. I think about Moses when Moses is on the backside of the desert with a bunch of stinking sheep, and all of a sudden he sees a bush on fire, but it's not consumed. And all of a sudden the Bible says that he turned aside. He turned aside. At that place in his life, it was a crossroads. He made the right turn, and God would go on to use him as the deliverer of Israel. Do you ever wonder what's on the other side of a right turn in your life? You ever think about that? You ever wonder what's on the other side of you submitting to the will and the word of God in your life? I believe with all of my heart this morning, the difference in disaster and deliverance simply comes down to you and I making the right turns at what we're going to preach about this morning, the turning point. This morning we're going to preach about the importance of having these turning points in your life, not just for a lost person to be saved, but for a saved person to find and fulfill the will of God. And boy, Paul gives us a beautiful picture of a turning point in his life. I want you to look down, if you will. You really see a tale of two emotions. Uh, Look down, if you would, to verse 5. Watch what he says. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. You ever feel like that? Yeah. I spent all day yesterday in the sun with teenagers. I know what that means. Your flesh have no rest. I'm 43, okay? I don't bounce as good as I used to. But we were troubled on every side. You ever feel like that? 
without we're fighting, within we're fears. Okay, that's not good. Verse 5, let's just erase that one out. We don't want that one. But watch verse 6. Nevertheless, God that comforted those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. So all of a sudden, verse 5, we have bad news. Verse 6, we have good news. Now, somewhere in verse 5 and verse 6, there was a turning point where things went from trouble to peace. Now, folks, that's the turning point we need in our life today. We need to find these turning points. Why? Because if it worked for Paul, it'll work for us. By the way, that's why God put it in his word. God says, watch, I'm going to bring about a turning point in the life of Paul. I don't know about you, I need turning points every once in a while. There are times in my life I'm in a place like verse number 5 where there's great distress in our life. And boy, you long for verse number 6 where you find that place of comfort. What was it? What was it that brought about the comfort at the turning point for Paul? Well, here's the good news. I'm going to tell you today, all right? I'm going to share that with you if we could. Notice down verse 5. I mean, we look at verse number 5. This is something we can all relate to. Matter of fact, we look at our country today. I think it described in verse 5. You look at so many homes today, I think they're described in verse number 5. You look at churches today, I think you can see a lot of what's described in verse number 5. But wait a minute, we don't want to live in verse 5, do we? We don't want to live at the place where we have no rest in our homes and we have no rest in our country and we have troubles and fightings and fears. We don't want to live at that place. Why? Because, boy, that's a miserable place to be. But in order for us to find the turning point, we need to look at this first thing this morning and let's dissect it a little bit. Number one, I want you to notice the distress in verse number five. Notice the distress. I want to show you what we're turning from. There's an old Indian fable about a mouse who got tired of being a mouse. Now, if I was a mouse, I'd probably get tired of being a mouse too. There's all kinds of things in the world that want to kill you. Decon, rat traps. Teenagers with BB guns, wives with brooms, cats, all kind of things that want to kill you. I mean, hawks flying through the air. If I was a mouse, I wouldn't want to be a mouse either. So this mouse got tired of being a mouse. And so finally the mouse went to this shaman and he says, I'm tired of being a mouse. I'm tired of being afraid of the cat. I want to, I want to be something more fearsome. So he says, all right, I'll take you from being the mouse and I'll make you the cat. And so now he's a cat, and boy, he's feeling it. Yeah, now I get to go and I get to pick on the mice, but suddenly he finds out that there's a dog. And even though he's a cat and now he has power over the mouse, he's thinking, well, now there's a dog, and now this dog is chasing me everywhere. As a cat, you have to fear dogs, right? You have to fear not cat people. There's a few of us in here. Rocking chairs, right? Man, so now the cat's thinking to himself, he goes back to the shaman and he says, hey, I I didn't like being a mouse, but now I don't like being a cat because there's a dog. So the shaman says, all right, I'll change you to the dog. So he changed him to the dog and he's like, well, this is great. I got sharp teeth and I get to bark and now I get to chase the cat around. But over in India, guess what they have over there? They have tigers. The dog's thinking to himself, yeah, I'm bigger and badder than the mouse and the cat, but man, that tiger could eat me for breakfast. And so now he's running from the tiger. After a while, he went to the shaman and he says, hey, I'm tired of being the tiger. Why? Because men shoot tigers. He says, I want to be a man. And so he makes him into a man. And so on and so forth. He said, what is the man afraid of? I don't know, maybe his wife, maybe the tax man. I don't know, but do you know what I learned through that story the first time I read it? There's always going to be something to be distressed about. 
no matter who you are, no matter how talented you are and who you're better than or who you're less than, it doesn't matter. There's always going to be something to distress about. Now, here's what you got to get this morning. You're going to have a verse 5. I'll promise you. You're going to have a verse 5 where your flesh finds no rest. There are fightings without. There are fears within. You are going to have a verse, a time, a season in your life where you are going into this place of distress. And Satan would love nothing more than to use this place of distress in your life to lead you to destruction. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bring a verse 5 in your life where you have no rest, where you are troubled on every side, where there are fightings without and fears within, and Satan wants to use that against you to destroy you. Give you an example, 1 Samuel 30. I, I love 1 Samuel 30, even though it's a frightening passage. David and his men come back from battle to find the hometown burned down, and worse than that, their wives and their children have been kidnapped. And the Bible says the men were greatly distressed. The Bible says that they wept and they could not until they could not weep anymore, and, and they spake of stoning him. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Samuel 30. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him. What well, can I tell you? I've never been there yet. But you may come to a place in your life and you're like David where you feel like everything's imploding in on around you. That's a distressing place to be at. Amen? Now watch. Because the men were distressed, now they're wanting to destroy David. And now David, the Bible says, he is distressed. Can I tell you what the end of it all is? Satan wants to destroy you. Satan wants to get you to your verse number 5, to where the Bible says you have no rest. The Bible says you're troubled on every side. But can I encourage you something this morning? Be careful in getting your directions from your distresses. Be careful from getting direction in your life from distresses in your life. Watch, the men who wanted to stone David, they did not get that direction from God. They got that from their distresses. You see, that's how the devil works. He wants to manipulate the bad time you're having with your finances in your home to destroy you spiritually. He wants to manipulate the bad times that you're having in your marriage to destroy you spiritually. That's his desire. That's why you can't find direction in your distresses. Because suddenly you'll find yourself doing something that's totally against the will and the word of God. Give an example. There's a little girl out in her backyard one day and she was digging a hole. Her neighbor looked over the fence and he says, what are you doing over there? And she says, well, I'm digging a hole to bury my fish. And he says, well, I'm sorry to hear that you lost your fish. I know that fish was important to you and you had it for years and all of this. But man, the little girl was knee deep in this hole. And she had dug the hole, a great big old hole. He says, well, look, sweetheart, you know, goldfish is only about that big. You could, you know, near about bury that in a crawfish hole. Why are you digging such a big hole? She says, because my fish is inside your cat. Some of you will get that on the way home. Watch. A distressing situation came into the little girl's life. So she decided, since I'm distressed, you're going to be distressed. And she took out the man's cat. Now, folks, I don't know if that's a true story or not, but I'll tell you, the principle's real. That when distress comes into your life, all of a sudden Satan wants to use a distressing situation to give you direction in your life. And that's when we really mess up. 
when we let our verse number fives decide what we do in the will and according to the word of God. Distressing situations can be dangerous. Matter of fact, I believe they're just as dangerous as alcohol. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the spirit. The verse is talking about, Ephesians 5, influences in your life. Don't be influenced by one, but you ought to be influenced by the other. Can I tell you a, a, a valuable lesson this morning to learn? is the powerful influence of distressing situations in your life. When you get into a dist- distressing situation in your life, it can be a turning point in your life where you move on to find the great will of God for your life or you move on to find great destruction straight from the devil. But you've got to decide at the turning point what you're going to do with your distress. Now, why? Look down to verse 5. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. Now, there's something you've got to see right here in verse 5. Why does the devil use distress so well? For when we were coming to Macedonia, watch this, two words, our flesh. You need to see this this morning. You see, the reason Satan uses distress as a turning point in our life is because it targets our weakest point. Distress targets our flesh. We start going through a distressing time with our children. And folks, let's just be honest, our children can be distressing, can't they? Amen. Brother Michael is only like a year old, he amen that one. I mean, come on, some of you folks got teenagers, and you just sat on your amen. Shame on you. I know you're, look, I spent all day yesterday in the van with some of your kids. They can be distressing, all right? And they'll tell you I can be distressing too. Listen, maybe our kids are distressing and we have distress in our marriage or distress in our finances. Distress, distress, distress. Can I tell you why it's such a powerful tool of Satan in our lives? Because distress targets the weak point in verse 5. For we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest You see, Satan uses difficult times, distressing times to target the weakest part about us, and that's our flesh. You want to get me in the flesh just as quick as anything? Bring stress. Bring stress. I try to walk in the Spirit. I try to live according to the will and the Word of God. But, oh, it's amazing how fast that coin can flip over when distressing times come into my life. I'll find myself walking in the flesh and even proud of it. What happens? Distress. Verse 5. We have no rest. We're troubled on every side. Without, we're fightings. Within, we're fears. By the way, let me give you an example. Here's Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Right out of the gate. He's led of the Spirit where? Into the wilderness. Not an oasis, the wilderness. What was he doing in the wilderness? Do you remember He was fasting 40 days and 40 nights. The Bible says that after he fasted 40 days, 40 nights, he was and hungered. You're thinking, I'd have been hungry after 45 minutes. Forget 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungered. You know what that means? Watch. I'm so thankful that God included that in the scriptures. After 40 days and 40 nights, Satan is attacking Christ through what we have as our weakest point, the flesh. So how do you know? What did he tell him? Did he come to him and says, let's go toe-to-toe, man-to-man, and let's fight this out? He says, no, if you're really God, turn these stones into bread. Can I ask you, what was he appealing to? 
he's appealing to his flesh. Now, it wasn't his weak point, it's our weak point. Can I tell you, watch, now I love bread, that's why I can't do keto. I love bread. Yesterday at the air show, it had all these Cajuns down there cooking. Brother Richard, thank the Lord for him and Miss Susan, took off their anniversary to go with us yesterday, and he brought me a boudin ball. I don't even know what's all in that. I don't want to know what's all in that. I think it's like Cajun potted meat. You just don't want to know. You just don't want to know. Just eat it. Man, it's fried and it was good. You know, it may not be bread that he comes after you with. He may attack your wheat point through your verse 5, distress. Why? Because it's your flesh that he's trying to cause to derail your spirit. Satan desires nothing more than to use your distresses to lead you to your destruction. He's going to come at you. Watch what he did. I mean, what a, what a military tactic here in verse 5. When we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Can I tell you? It's a winning strategy if you can get them surrounded. It's a winning strategy. But we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings. Within were fears. I've never mentioned these, I don't think, together in a message before. Maybe I haven't. I just forgot about it. But it seemed new when I read it last night. I want you to notice there's three distresses Satan wants to use to take you out. And the Lord alliterated them for us. Notice verse 5. There's the flesh. Notice there's fighting, and notice there's fears. Can I tell you, flesh, fighting, and fears are three of the greatest turning points that can turn you away from the will and the word of God in your life. Your flesh, fighting, and fears. Now, I want you to pay close attention. All three of those things in verse 5 are capable of directing us to the wrong way to what God would have us to do. Now, I want you to think about that first one there. He says in verse 5, our flesh had no rest. Do you remember Elijah when he was under the juniper tree? He was tired. He was tired. I mean, the man just came off a solo battle, 1 versus 450 plus, by himself fighting the prophets of Baal, praying down fire from heaven, just a great victory. He is tired, and now he's running from Jezebel, and he camps out under the juniper tree, and I think all of us will make our way to a juniper tree at some point in our service to God. If, if you don't, I don't think you're serving him hard enough, to be honest with you. He camps out under the tree, and he's tired. He says, God, I'm not worthy to live. I'm running from old Jezebel. Just defeated 450 men. If I defeated 450 men, I'd be so pumped. Because I'm carnal, and he's not. And now he's running from a woman, and he's sitting under that juniper tree. All of a sudden, she's probably that woman flying that A-10 yesterday. Serious, man. Yes, ma'am. He's camped out on this juniper tree, and he says, God, I'm not worthy to live. I'm no better than my father's. What did God do? God came along, and God made him a little cake, had some water for him. What did he say? The journey is too hard for thee. Can I tell you what he was really saying? It's too hard for your flesh. You ain't got it, what it's going to take to do what you're going to need to do. You need something from me. You see, it was the weariness of his flesh 
that brought the distress that made him want to quit. Notice, the great man of God, Elijah, is now being susceptible to the attack on his flesh through what? Distress. Distress. That's why I encourage people, when you get sick, you better walk with God. Because Satan will capitalize on your physical uh, abnormalities to bring you down. Now, watch closely. First was the flesh. The second one, watch what happens in verse 5. Our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without, watch this, we're fightings. We're fightings. You know, there is a thing called being battle-weary. Yesterday, we got to meet some Marines. We got to meet some Army folks. I mean, just amazing. Uh, the Golden Knights, the black team came in, jumped in, landed right in front. We got to talk with some of those guys. And uh, one of those guys had over 5,000 jumps out of an airplane. Five. We figured it out. This guy's like, been up in the air for years. <laughs> When you add up all the time that man has fell out of an airplane, they landed right there in front of us. I'm thinking, my goodness gracious, day in and day out, constantly, these folks go to the battlefield. The young lady flying the A-10 had 87 uh, combat missions over Afghanistan. That's a lot of fighting. You know, the Bible says, here's Paul, watch close. They were in distress, not just because of their flesh, but also because of the fightings that were there. It's sad, but every Christian is fighting multiple fronts today. I look at Israel over there, and you have Hezbollah up top, and you have Hamas down here, and they're fighting a multi-front war. I believe Christians are doing the same. Mom and dad, you're fighting one for your children. Husband and wife, you're fighting one for your home. Christian, you're fighting one for your walk. Church member, you're fighting one for your faithfulness. And we're fighting battles on every front. What does it say? We're troubled on every side. Without, we're fighting. After a while, man, suddenly that flesh, through fighting, you begin to get weak. Here he comes. Here he comes. I'll give an example. Uh, the Bible tells in 2 Samuel chapter 21. I won't take time to read it because it's a long passage. But I want to read something beautiful to you. 2 Samuel 21, here's David. He is an older man now. The Bible says, moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. It's almost like we're reading a newspaper from 2023, doesn't it? They had yet war again with Israel. Here's old man David. He has fought his whole life. That's all this young man has done. He has fought lions. He has fought bears. He's fought giants. He's fought kings. He has fought Philistines. He has fought, 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 fought. And now the Bible says as he gets older... The Bible says, moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down, not going down like falling, but he went down to fight. But I want you to listen to the last part of this. The Bible says David waxed faint. He waxed faint. What happened? Well, the fight, the distress of the fight. After a while, you just get tired of fighting. And, oh, man, you go back and read it. Oh, Abishai comes along. And helps out David. He recognized, man, he's tired. He's been fighting. And here comes old Abishai to strengthen him. Folks, I want you to understand something. Satan desires to work through your distresses, through your flesh, and then through your fight. After a while, you get tired of fighting. What is Satan, tr Satan trying to do? He's trying to direct you away from God through the fight. Then the last one in verse number 5, the Bible says, within were fears. Oh, my soul, fears have a way of directing you against the will of God like nothing else. By the way, why did the man with the one talent bury it? He says, I was afraid. 
He got directions from his fears. I was afraid. God, I, I, I know that when you came back, you're going to expect to have more. And so I, I dug a hole and I buried it. You see, that emotional distress of fear caused him to go against what his master had told him to do. It's kind of like a game. When I was a kid, I had one of the first Nintendos that ever came out, the first model that came out. And there was a game called Tetris. Everybody remember Tetris, you 80s guys? Yeah. You guys play the new Tetris. We're the OG original, okay? Tetris, that's us, all right? It was ours before it was yours. It was ours when it was not even really color, all right? Or at least our, our black and white TV didn't have it in color, okay? And you remember the game of Tetris? You had all these blocks dropping. Do you remember that? And you stacked them on top, and some were like this, and some were L-shaped, and you had to keep stacking them. My wife is brilliant at that game. It frustrates me to no end. And all of a sudden, the blocks are dropping, and you're moving this one here and moving this one here, and then slowly they start stacking up. If they had a heart monitor on you as that game is being played, I promise you, you're spiking. Your Apple Watch is telling you, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. You're about to die of a heart attack because of Tetris. And then all of a sudden, it, it, and next thing you know, it gets toward the top. And now you've got a couple of blocks left. If you don't move them right, it's over and you die. Not literally, but it feels like it, doesn't it? That's the distress Man, life is coming at you. This, what does it say? We are troubled on every side. It's stacking up on us. It's distress. And that's the moment so often you and I step out of the will of God. All through distress. Let me read you a quick quote and I'll give you the second thing. F.B. Meyer said this. Never act in panic, nor allow man to dictate you. Calm yourself and be still. Force yourself into the quiet of your closet until the pulse beats normally. And the scare has ceased to disturb. When you're most eager to act is the time you will make the most mistakes. Do not say in your heart what you will or what you won't do, but wait upon God. He makes known his way. So long as the way is hidden, it is clear that there is no need of action. And that he accounts himself responsible for all results of keeping you where you are. Did you hear what he said? Listen close. So as long as the way is hidden... It is clear that there's no need of action. How often do we as the people of God get in a situation where we are surrounded on every side and we have that reflex that we've got to act and we've got to do something. Can I tell you, if God doesn't intervene, then God doesn't want you to intervene either. If God doesn't step in, if God doesn't do something, then what do we do? We be still. Be still. What did he tell Moses at the Red Sea when Pharaoh's behind him? People are grumbling around him and a Red Sea is in front of him. He said, stand still and see. What did he say? Just wait on God. Don't let the distress of the situation cause you to go against what you know God told you to do. Number one, notice the distress. We're getting to a turning point. I got to hurry. Look down. If you keep reading, there's something beautiful in verse number six because there's a turning point here. And oh, this is the message today. Even though verse 5 was a nightmare, verse 6, the Bible says, nevertheless, God. Can I tell you the truth of the matter is sometimes we react to distressing situations. It's the worst thing you can do. I mean, look, I, I didn't know this until I was a young man, maybe a teenager, that if you have a fire on the stove, which, you know, sometimes when young men cook, that happens, right? Right? <laughs> Come on, don't leave me hanging. At least make me feel better about myself. My mom telling me, you know, what's the reaction? Go throw some water on. That's what you do with fires, right? No, no, no. That's how you get a new kitchen quick, all right? You don't throw that on there. That's what you're tempted to do. But wait a minute. 
Sometimes when we react, we do more damage. Watch Paul's reaction in verse 6. It's the first word I want you to see, and we're going to pause on it for a moment. The Bible says, nevertheless. And believe it or not, I I believe that first word in verse 6 is the key ingredient to having a turning point in your life. Why? Number two, because it's the decision. I want to show you why here in just a moment. A moment. It's the decision. So, well, how does this work? The word nevertheless means in spite of. In spite of. So here, watch what happens. So here's Paul. He's having a crummy verse 5. I think we're all going to have verse 5 throughout life. Amen. We're all going to have those times where distressing situations. But the Bible says, verse 6, nevertheless, or Paul says, in spite of. So here's what he's saying. Even though he had a verse number 5, Paul didn't flinch. Paul didn't run. Paul didn't react. Nevertheless, in spite of all of that, Paul remained faithful to the call of God. Now, stick with me. The second point will help you today if you'll just take some time this morning to hide this in your heart. Now, Paul didn't know what God was going to do. And sometimes you're not going to know what God's going to do. Paul didn't know how God was going to intervene. Paul didn't know how God was going to straighten all of it out. But here's what Paul did know. Paul knew that he was going to serve God nevertheless. You see, that was a decision he made. That God, I don't know how you're going to get me out of this. And God, I don't know how you're going to fix this. And God, I don't know how you're going to take the trouble away from every every side. But God, I've made up my mind. I've made the decision. Nevertheless, I'm going to be faithful. Now listen to me. Listen to me this morning. This is important. You don't have to know what God's going to do. But you do need to decide what you're going to do. So how is God going to cure me of this cancer? And how is God going to bless and get us out of this bind with our finances? And how is God going to put our home back together? I don't know. But you ought to decide you're going to serve him nevertheless. You ought to make up your mind that no matter how bad it gets and trouble on every side, listen, God, I don't know how you're going to fix this, but I'm going to serve you. I've made the decision nevertheless. Nevertheless. Job said, though he slay me, he just says, hey, can we just go ahead and clear the deck on this? Even if he kills me, I'm going to serve him nevertheless. Here's our problem, all right? We get distressed wondering what God's going to do. Can I tell you, look, if you try to figure out God, your head's going to explode. I try to figure out some of you sometime and my head explodes. Me and Brother Ben, I mean, Brother Ben, he's up here, man. Physics. And we'll say, we're talking about artificial intelligence. First time I ever walked in his house. Next thing I know, we're talking about artificial intelligence. I said, look, I, I don't know that I have artificial or, or unartificial intelligence. We're talking about all this stuff. Look, we can't figure out each other. What makes you think we're going to figure out God? God, how are you going to do this? God, how are you going to work that out? It doesn't matter. Just go ahead and decide you're going to serve him nevertheless. Go ahead and just serve God. It doesn't matter. You don't like me. I don't like you. It doesn't matter if you don't like the chairs. It doesn't matter if you don't like the paint. I'm going to serve God. Nevertheless, I have made up my mind. That's what we're going to do according to the will and the word of God. That's what Paul did. How did Esther say this? <clears throat> Watch. Here comes Esther. She says, I'm going to go into the king. I could be executed for that. And if I perish, I perish. She just sounds so cool about it. You're dragging me in there. That woman Pilate's probably dragging me in there. You know, come on in here, be a man. Do what you got to do. How do you say if I perish, I perish? Because you've already decided nevertheless. How could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we are not careful 
I'm just being honest. If I'm talking to the king, uh, Mr. King, look, I understand where you're coming from, and I know you feel the way you do about what you said, and we really appreciate you and what you've done for the kingdom and all that, but if you don't mind, would you please let us out of this? They says, we're not careful. How do you say that? How do you say it? Well, because you've decided nevertheless. That's how you say that. You've already made up your mind. I'm going to do the will and the word of God no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're surrounded on every side. I'm going to do the will and the word of God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Though none go with me, I still will father, follow. Nevertheless, you think about Nehemiah. I love Nehemiah. Probably my favorite book of the Bible in the Old Testament that I, that I preach out of. And, well, it's been a while since we preached out of it. Nehemiah chapter 4, listen to what the Bible says as he's working, doing the will of God. The Bible says that Sanballat, Geshem, Tobiah, the, the bad guys here, the Bible says they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Verse 8 says this, nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God, set a watch against them day and night because of them. So here's the bad guys, Nehemiah, we're going to tear your wall down. Nehemiah says, nevertheless, we made a prayer to God, and we put a watch out there. Do you know what he was saying? Say what you will. We're going to serve in spite of you. We're not going to let the threat of what you're desiring to do to deter us from the will of God. It was the will of God, the wall go up. And hey, look, you can say what you're going to say. You can do what you're going to do, but we're going to serve. What did he say in verse 8? Nevertheless, they made up our mind distresses would not deter them. I couldn't help but think about marriages this morning. I was looking over my notes and reading through this passage about how oftentimes marriages will have a verse 5. Amen? Come on. Verse 5. No rest, troubled on every side, without we're fightings, within we're fears. All right, your marriage is going to have a verse number 5. You're going to have a distressing place. And you're going to wonder, my goodness, is he worth it? Is she worth it? You know? I'm thinking we can't do that with our kids. Do I want them anymore? You probably have the largest orphanage in the world right here at Central Baptist Church. Can I tell you, watch. My wife and I, we've had distressing situations in our home between us. Sometimes because of me. Okay, most of the time because of me. Watch. I don't have to sit around, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Am I going to keep her? Is she going to keep? Now watch this. July the 9th, 2005, I made a decision. That decision's already been made. I ain't got to worry about that one. I don't have, oh my goodness, I mean, could I trade her in? No, folks, that decision's made. It's made. I don't have to distress about that. All I've got to distress is, hey, I'm going to do what thus saith the Lord. I understand sometimes in a marriage, look, it takes you, it takes him, and it takes God, all right? And if it's just you and God, I get it sometimes, all right? That wasn't your choice. But hear me out. Oftentimes, we distress over things that are within our tr control. They are within our power. I don't have to distress about decisions that are already made. What do I have to do? I just got to trust God through it. Nevertheless, God is what he says. Can I tell you what will be the turning point in your life this morning? Sometimes the turning point is not deciding what to do. It's deciding what you're not going to do. <laughs> there are times I don't know what to do. But there are times I know more about what I'm not going to do. You need to make up your mind on what you're not going to do. 
Paul says, I got this verse, number five here. It was distressing. There were fightings. There were fears. My flesh was weary. Nevertheless, God. He says, well, in spite of all of that, my mind was already made up that I'm not going to quit serving God anyway. You see, folks, you got to make up your mind. Make that decision. We see a picture of that real quickly. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen close. The Bible says he went a little further. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Do you know what's happening to Jesus in Matthew 26? He's distressed. He's distressed. He's distressed in a way you and I will never be distressed. He's about to bear the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future. He's distressed. He says, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But wait a minute. Listen to what verse 39 says. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Nevertheless. Do you know what he was saying? It was a decision. That even though my flesh feels this way and my spirit is being grieved, that even though I feel the way I do, nevertheless, in spite of how I feel, not my will but thy will be done. The decision was made. That ought to be us this morning. That in spite of what we go through and how we feel, listen, our decisions aren't made by our feelings. They're decided by our Father. I've already made up my mind. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. You look down, 2 Timothy, I'll give you one more. Chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, for the which cause I suffer these things. Oh man, that's a horrible thing to suffer. But listen to what he says, nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Paul said, I, I, I'm going to suffer these things, Timothy. You're going to go through tough times, Timothy. But you need to have a nevertheless. I'm so thankful when that young preacher was able to open up those scrolls and read about what Paul said. There was a nevertheless in there. That before this man had his head chopped off, that Timothy knew that serving God was worth a nevertheless. In spite of, no matter what. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. It doesn't matter who goes with you or not. I'm going to serve God nevertheless. Now let me help you understand this a little bit better before we close. I want to give you a way to remember it if I can, okay? Look at the word nevertheless. There are actually three words in one. Never. The. Less. Satan wants to use your distresses to lead you, watch, to accept less. Remember it this way. Watch. He sends distress into your life, and suddenly, can I tell you the first thing to go? Church, you have a tough time in your home, I understand it, have a tough time with your finances. The first thing we do is we quit on God. So watch, less church. We have trouble in our our family, maybe you have trouble in your marriage, that's going to happen. Why? Because you are two different humans living under the same roof, right? And according to the Bible, you're a man, she's a woman, or vice versa, and y'all think very differently. Amen. Man, y'all have missed some easy amens today. That was such an easy one. She's not going to hurt you when you get home. You put an amen on that one, all right? You have trouble in your home. Watch, you stop being faithful to church. You stop having family devotions. You stop having your prayer time. Watch what happened. He used distress to lead you to less. Less devotion. Less faithfulness. Less communication. Less, less, less. Now stick with me, all right? Verse 6 Paul says, nevertheless, God. So, Satan uses your verse 5 of distress to try to cause you to get away from God. Here was Paul's reply. Watch, watch, watch. Never the less. 
What are you going to do, Paul? Paul, you're having this tough time. Paul, you're surrounded. Paul, you've got fightings, you've got fears, all of this. Paul, what are you going to do? Well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can tell you what I'm not going to do. Never the less. I'm not going to do less. Never the less. I'm not going to be less faithful. I'm not going to be less committed. I'm not going to be less fervent. Never the less. I know that. You've got to make up your mind that when distress comes to you and your household, your answer is going to be never the less. Never less devoted, never less faithful, never less committed. Because I'll tell you this, Satan desires that you end up with exactly that, less, less. Number two, how do we have a turning point in our life? There's got to be a decision, never the less. Remember it this way and I'll close. When Satan says no more, your, supply, your reply should be never the less. He wants to use your distress to say no more. As a kid, we used to play a game called uh, Mercy. You ever play that? So dumb. That's why all of us have arthritis. Trouble in our hand. Why do we do that? Why? Dumb. Boy, and you're sitting there, and boy, you're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, trying to show out who's the most manly. And finally, you get bent over, bent over, and you're like, okay, no more, no more, no more. Right? Satan uses those times of distress. He wants you to say no more. I'm going to quit being faithful. I'm going to quit coming to church. I'm going to quit reading my Bible. I'm going to quit having my family devotion. I'm going to quit on all. I'm going to quit on my home. I'm going to quit on my kids. Satan wants you to say no more. Here's what your reply ought to be. Nevertheless. I don't know how God's going to work this out, but I'll promise you I'm not going to settle. Nevertheless, because that's what he wants for you this morning. Number two, the decision. Let's close with this, an invitation. The Bible says, nevertheless, God. We're going to stitch this up this morning. A turning point. Well, it starts with the distress, but somewhere in your distress, you may need to make a decision, nevertheless. No. No, in spite of my verse 5, I want the rest of verse 6, which is what? You're going to see how Paul was able to say it. Nevertheless, God. God. You see, this morning what you need is not for you to figure it all out. You need God to intervene. That's what we need. You, look, you, you don't need to figure out how it's all going to happen. You need just to get what verse 6 says, nevertheless. Paul's about to tell you why he says, nevertheless, God. That's number three in the turning point. That's the difference. The difference. Now let me read verse number 6 for you with a little bit of personal commentary, okay? Verse 5 says, For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Pretty rough day on verse 5. Let me reread verse 6 for you. Nevertheless, because of God. Nevertheless, because of God. How did you go from verse 5 to verse 6? God. God. Rather than Paul figure out how all this is going to work, he says, I'm just going to wait on God to intervene. And let me give you an example when you got saved. Romans chapter 5, verse 7, not 8. We know 8, but let me read verse 7. The Bible says, For scarcely for a righteous man one will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't good, we weren't righteous. 
Here we are surrounded by our sin. And yet now, watch, we had a turning point. We're saved and on our way to heaven. What was the turning point? Verse 8, but God. God intervened to do on our behalf what we couldn't do for ourselves. But we had to decide we were going to trust in what only God could bring to our situation. Here's the problem today. I believe this with all of my heart. We get so distressed about circumstances that are beyond our control. But we are too prideful to let God intervene. That we know our finances are outside of our control. Our marriage and making it all happen is outside of our control. And the hearts of our children, it's outside of our control. But we're too prideful. We're going to keep tinkering with it rather than just get God right there in the middle of it. And when God gets in the middle of it, what happens? Verse 6. But God that comforted those that are cast down comforted us. That God brought something to the situation that they could not bring to the situation themselves. I believe it with all my heart today. The greatest problem we have is we're in the center of it. And we're trying to fix it. And we're trying to tinker with it. Look, I love to tinker on things. I love to fix things. It don't always work out. Sometimes I even like to break stuff so I can fix it and show my wife how smart I am. Usually doesn't turn out well either. But when it comes to the matter of your home and your children and a nation and a church, what we need more than anything is to get God right in the middle of it. And let God referee that thing. Let God put it all together. He said, well, how do you know what God wants? Well, he put this book together that we have a reference by. Our problem today is we want to make the difference. I'm going to fix my home. I'm going to have the good idea. No, you're not. It was our good idea that made it the mess that it is. What we need is what we needed when we were lost. We needed but God to get in the middle of it, commendeth his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That's the difference. That's the difference in my life. That's the difference in my eternity. That's going to be the difference in your verse number five. The turning point is when you decide, in spite of all of this, I'm going to trust God to intervene. Someone said this, to pray is nothing more than to let Jesus into your needs. To pray is to give Jesus permission to employ his powers in the alleviation of our distress. Can I ask you this morning? Maybe spiritually, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your finances. Do you have a verse 5? Do you have a distress to where your flesh has no rest? You're troubled on every side. Without, we're fighting. Within, we're fierce. Do you have a verse number 5? Can I tell you, God can make the difference. It doesn't matter what you're going through. I jokingly say this, but I mean it with all my heart. Lazarus was dead. That's a problem. Amen? That's a big problem. God got involved with it, raised him up. Doesn't matter. Zacchaeus had a problem. The well had a problem. All right? Here's the question. The question this morning, the decision. Nevertheless, will you choose to let God do it in spite of all that's going on? God, I know I can't fix it. God, I know I can't straighten this out. But God, I need you right here in the middle of all of this because only you can make David said this, Psalms 120, in my distress, my distress, I called upon the Lord, and he heard me. You see, the reaction to distress shouldn't be you trying to fix it all. The reaction to distress should be you trusting God to do what only he can do. Distress, oh, it's real. 
But there's a turning point, and it's that decision when you decide, God, we're going to do it your way, nevertheless. God, I've made up my mind, no matter what you say, how to fix my home, how to fix my heart. Maybe this morning you're struggling with something in your heart, nobody knows. And man, you have been, it has been, it has kept you captive, and boy, you are battling this battle on the inside, nobody else knows it. And you've tried, and you've tried, and you've tried, and you can't fix it. Why don't you decide, hey, you're going to trust God to intervene nevertheless. No matter what, God, I'm trusting you to do what only you can do. Then you know what you're going to find out? You're going to find out that you, even though you have a verse number five, he can bring comfort to you in verse number six, because only God can make this morning, why don't you let God make a difference in your distress? Would you let him? Would you invite him in? He'd love to do that for you this morning. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. No one's looking around. The invitation is the most important part of the service. Hear me out this morning. Do you have a verse 5? Are you distressed? Are you distressed? Maybe this morning you feel surrounded on every side by whatever it is. Maybe this morning you're lost and you feel surrounded by your sin. And you're thinking, well, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Well, same thing.